Hello, everyone. Today on Rundown Pod, we'll be reviewing the podcast No Such Thing as a Fish, a podcast I'm calling News of the Weird for Smart People. Prepare to be entertained. This is The Rundown Pod, a podcast about podcasts, your podcast concierge. I'm Roger Clark, with an E, announcer and co-host for this production. And now, a man who noticed the Asian edition of the Wall Street Journal reported China has astronomical sovereign debt, while in America they report on how the Chinese just finished constructing the world's highest bridge, Mr. Paul Clifford. Hello everyone, this is the Rundown Pod and I'm Paul Clifford. On today's podcast, we'll be reviewing No Such Thing as a Fish. It's a British podcast, that's kind of a panel podcast, where they take interesting facts and riff and, and do a little improvisation on them. But first, let me let you know how to contact me. You can email me at paul at rundownpod.com or you can tweet at us at Rundown Pod. And now a little bit about Roger's introduction there. I was looking at the Wall Street Journal version from Asia. So you just add Asia to the Wall Street Journal URL. And one of the first stories on the page was how China's sovereign debt had reached 250% of their GDP. Then if you go over and replace the Asia part of that URL with U dot or US, one of the first stories was how China had just built the world's tallest bridge, or the highest bridge, from the deck of the roadway down to the bottom of the valley below. I have this theory now that local news is always self-deprecating. If you were to go to Norway, for example, they would probably talk about how horrible they are and how likely it is that their oil reserves are going to suddenly dry up and they're all going to be impoverished and uh, living in the streets. I don't know this for sure because I can't read Norwegian, but the Oslo Times, I'm betting. Maybe, maybe someone in, in Norway can fact check that. So back to no such thing as a fish. The name no such thing as a fish is, is kind of interesting as well. It comes from the QI TV series on the BBC, where all the panelists on no such thing as a fish are writers. So they all write for the QI TV series. And the QI TV series... They have seasons they name after letters, like A, B, C. And the eighth season was the H season. And there was an episode called Hoax. The panelists on the QI show were given a fact that biologist Stephen Jay Gould concluded after a lifetime of research that there was no such thing as a fish. And the fact turns out to be true that fish is more of a colloquialism and strict biology dictates that there is really no such thing as a fish because one of the facts they cite to, to prove this is that a salmon apparently has more genetically in common with a camel than it does with a hagfish. Oh, if you're interested in the QI show, there's a lot of episodes of those on YouTube. So you can, I think all of them, in fact, are on YouTube. So. so the premise of the no such thing as a fish is almost identical to QI, whereas QI has a panelist and they do a little improvisation on no such thing as a fish, they just bring in random facts and then riff on it individually. And they all kind of have facts related to a subject. So they bring in a fact and each of them talk about it for two or three minutes. To lead up to the first clip, you need just a little bit of background information. 
they're talking about, the part that's cut out is they're talking about the fact that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author behind the Sherlock Holmes series, had a live appearance six days after his death. And how that worked was they had a medium and, and sort of a seance where he was supposed to talk to the audience from beyond the grave. Let's, uh, let's listen to this first clip. Well, the th so the thing about the medium is getting it wrong. This was a huge part of the relationship between Doyle and Houdini, Harry Houdini, yes. uh, the escapologist. They were friends, and Doyle believed, and Houdini didn't. And Houdini spent a lot of his time cheerfully unmasking fraudulent mediums. And then Doyle talked Houdini into going to a seance, because uh, Doyle's wife was a medium. And she said, Houdini, I've got great news. I'm in contact with your mother, who's died. And they talked him into it, and then he went along. And then Houdini's mum wrote a 15-page message to Houdini. Unfortunately, it was in perfect English, whereas Houdini's mum spoke almost no English. Uh -huh. yeah, she was and, it and it started with the sign of the cross, yeah. and Houdini's mother was married to a rabbi. And it was just... Yeah, it, it wasn't was, very well done. It wasn't very well done. And that did break up their friendship, really, didn't Completely. it? Which is a shame, because they had one of these very good sparring relationships where Houdini was constantly trying to convince Conan Doyle that he wasn't magic, and Conan Doyle was constantly trying to tell Houdini that Houdini was magic. I can't be the first person to point this out, the irony in this, that Arthur Conan Doyle was known as sort of a father of deductive reasoning of the, the Socratic method. And he believed in spirits. But... Harry Houdini, on the other hand, who posed himself as this kind of magical being that could do magical things, on the other hand, was very procedural and understood the logic behind what he was doing, and it was just an illusion. Again, I can't be the first person to th think of that, and there's probably something out there where someone's thought very deeply about that. It's interesting. Now let's move on to the second clip. The second clip is a discussion that results from this inventor who invented a laser beam that attaches to a train that will shoot the leaves off the track that are in front of the train. So the, the laser beam shoots like a, a 100 or 200 meters ahead will, will just eviscerate or vaporize leaves that are on the track. And apparently leaves in the fall cause quite a problem with the train stopping distance because they're really slippery on the track. So this laser beam will destroy all the leaves in front of the train, allowing the train a reasonable stopping distance. So now let's listen in and see where our panelists take the laser beam train discussion. Do you think everyone's died in every single train crash? I always make sure to get off before the last stop because I assume it just goes into a wall. <laughs> well, we've <laughs> talked about died. the phrase, haven't we? Getting off at Gateshead. No. We Getting off at Gateshead is uh, slang for the withdrawal method in sex because Gateshead is the l second last stop on the line yeah. before yeah. Newcastle. Uh, okay. I thought it was for premature ejaculation. Uh, I think that's being thrown off the train at Gateshead whether you want to leave it or not. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the beauty of the program. You start with laser beams and trains, you end up with stories about premature ejaculation. I don't know. I'd like to... Personally, I'd like to pretend that I've never been thrown off the train at Gateshead, but uh, I might be lying about that. Roger, uh, I'm going to ask Roger Clark with an E a question. Roger, have you ever gotten off the train at Gateshead? I'll have you know. I've boarded that train more than a few times, but my foot has never touched the Gateshead platform. A proper Englishman finishes his work. Mm, I don't doubt it, Roger. You're, you're quite a ladies' man over there. Okay, let's look at a third clip. I, I, you can see from... From the way these clips are going, this is this is kind of an interesting show. If you like facts, if you like kind of 
silly British humor, I guess. Um, it's it's worth the listen. It's worth you know you can poke around the episodes, but there there's always something entertaining there. It's like uh, you're, you're mining for gold because there's always two or three really good moments in these episodes. So why don't we talk about the third clip after we listen to it? When the poets Shelley and Byron went on a rider's retreat to Lake Geneva in 1816, the hotel opposite them hired out telescopes to their guests so that they could spy on them. (laughs) So funny. It's so surreal. So this, by the way, was a very, very famous trip uh, that Shelley and Byron had made because they, uh, they were sat in the house one night and there were lots of storms that were going on for about three days solid. And it's during one of those storms that Shelley's girlfriend at the time, Mary and Byron and Shelley started coming up with ghost stories and scary stories, horror stories. And that's where Frankenstein was born. So the five guests, uh, there were three great writers and then two really tragic figures, one of whom was Claire Claremont, who was Byron's flues, who he'd impregnated. And he really wanted her to stop trying to get off with him. And she followed him there. And so he invited this other guy, his doctor called Polidori, uh, to act as like a third wheel to make sure that Claire didn't get a chance to get Byron in a corner and snog him or whatever. And yeah, Polidori had the most awful time with Byron, employed as his doctor. And they were asked to write these ghost stories on this night. Byron challenged him to write a ghost story. And Polidori wrote this story and wrote the first ever vampire story in the English language. And um, he just kind of forgot about it. He sent it to a friend when he got back to the UK and it got lost somewhere. And then a few years later, it got published in um, this monthly magazine just under the title The Vampire, a tale by Lord Byron. And so Polidori has spent you know many years being so jealous of Byron and hating him, resenting him, and then he finds that this one story is written as published under Byron's name. That That's great. It, it exemplifies what you're going to hear in this show. And as kind of an epilogue to that is John William Polidori, the doctor, he died at the age of 25, about two weeks short of his 26th birthday. And he died in London. Um, and he was depressed over gambling debts and, and other problems in his life. Even though his his death was ruled natural causes. They, uh, they found some cyanide near his body and uh, strongly suspect that's what, what was to blame. In addition, that, that clip, I don't know how you can walk away from that and think Lord Byron's a good person. First of all, he's dissing his baby mama there. So his, he's impregnated this woman and he's just totally blowing her off and, and paying more attention to Mary Shelley. And the second thing is, is he steals a story from his doctor and publishes it as, as his own. I haven't read much literature about Lord Byron, but just from those two facts, I think we can deduce, well, Houdini or Arthur Conan Doyle could deduce that he's probably not the best, the world's best guy. So that's all I have for this week. As you can see, I'm a fan of the show. It's fun. It's light. You're going to come away with a few extra facts. It sounds smart because they're speaking with English accents. Pretty much anything you say with an English accent sounds pretty smart. Don't you think, Roger Clark, with an E? I concur with the sentiment. So he concurs with the sentiment. So as I said in the introduction, this this show is more or less news of the weird for smart people. And if you like this podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish, you can also go over to YouTube where they have a YouTube series called No Such Thing as the News, which is like QI that I spoke about in the beginning, No Such Thing as a Fish, and now No Such Thing as the News. They take a news story out of that week's news And they do a similar improvisational kind of run with each little story. And they do it in front of a live audience, at least the episode I watched. So I assume that that's the pattern for all those. 
That's all we have for this week. Hope you enjoyed the episode. So, for Roger Clark with the knee, I'm Paul Clifford saying, Matane, Mahalo, Alvider Zane, Hasta la Vista, and see you next time. <laughs>